You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, the Executive Director at the International Spy Museum. Today, we're joined by Professor Kevin King. Professor King is a native of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. In 2016, he was teaching English at American University of Afghanistan. In August of that year, he was kidnapped at gunpoint with fellow professor Timothy Weeks from Australia. They were held in captivity by the Taliban for more than three years and released last year in exchange for three Taliban members. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me, Chris. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Just like everyone else, uh, stuck in the lockdown. I realize I'm not the only person on the planet that's been inconvenienced by this, but sometimes you feel that way. But other than that, I'm doing pretty good. Good. You look good, and it's great to hear your voice. And again, thanks for doing this. I, I can't help thinking, though, but going from captivity, you had a brief respite, and then the pandemic strikes. So yeah, you yeah. Know, lightning struck twice but of course everybody's dealing with it as you say so what i'd like to do is understand what took you to afghanistan what about your career trajectory took you to american university what brought you to kabul Uh, okay that's that's it's a long story but i can i can try to shorten as much as i can i was teaching a i living in la i was uh working for like a, a marketing firm that did research for actually for the film companies and then I, right around 92 i got laid off and i just kind of didn't know what to do and i just started teaching in korea which a lot of people do and then from there i kind of liked that and i just started bouncing around i it lasted a lot longer than i ever would have expected it to but at least one thing that i wanted to do with uh, what i laughingly refer to as my life was to see the world and it gave me a chance to do that 
And I, I was in Korea. I was down in Cambodia for two years. I really enjoyed that. And um, then I came back to the States for a while. Actually, it was because my father died in the late 90s. And I taught there for a little bit. And then I went off again. I taught in uh, Saudi Arabia. It um, wasn't a lot of fun, but it was still interesting. Right. And I, I get to you know, meet up with the other teachers, and they're all kind of the same. I mean, it's not like I, I've since gotten a master's degree in, in international relations, I think. But when you first start out, it's, I think, teaching English in a foreign country, it's like joining the French Foreign Legion now. You just, when nothing else is going on, you just jump into it and you go and you see other people that, you know, just did, didn't have what they wanted to happen in their life. And it, it was actually kind of interesting. I got a chance to see the world. And I was in Saudi Arabia for a while. And then I had a short time in Japan. The things that I enjoy about uh, traveling is to see how how much things are different, how much people are different, and also how much things are the same, how much things, uh, how much people are the same. People's emotional lives are very similar all over the world. And just a, a brief little thing, and when I was living in in, uh, in Japan, I was just there for three months, and I had a little apartment, and out one window was Mount Fuji, and it was great. It was a magnificent sight. And but if I turn my head across the street, Denny's. So you think you're going around the world and you are, but the world comes with you too, especially with globalization. So I ended up there and, and, and I was in Egypt. I really liked that. I was with a contractor and that was like my real expat job. That's when I really felt like it. I, I had a real nice apartment and a, Cher a Jeep Cherokee and I, they moved me around. Uh, to some different locations. What this was, was I was teaching the Egyptian employees of a US contractor. They had been there since uh, like the Camp David Accords. And it was um, American pilots and American uh, who were training Egyptian pilots and also the contractors who would be maintaining and repairing the, uh, the vehicles. And but the, it was the next day I was gonna go and I get an email about a job that I had applied to that I had forgotten about. It was a short term, but it was in Afghanistan and it was really looked interesting. This wasn't at the university, this was something different. And it was for a project there. And I went and, and did that and that was that was 2007. And things were still pretty calm there. I mean, the, you could walk around and uh, you know, there was still pretty calm, although there were some stirrings that you could sense it was you know, maybe the, the security was getting a little tougher. The question is, could you go to Chicken Street in 2007? That was a sort of a calibration tool. That's the market that many Americans know about in Kabul and many foreigners. Were you able to go to Chicken Street? Oh, Chicken Street and what was the other one? But yeah, I know, and yeah, there were some of the places there. You could still get the uh, under-the-counter uh, libations, we say. And, but yeah, I went to Chicken Street and I got some, uh, what do you call the rugs there? The, uh, right. the Afghan rugs. Yeah, they're famous for that. And other parts of Chicken Street and then some of the bars there, the uh, atmosphere, which I'm surprised that never got attacked, but the, the, it was still a kind of a nice thing. And that was, and uh, that was like only a short time. That was a two month job, but I really liked it. And yep. Then I just went back to the U.S. for a while to see my uh, see my mother and my sister, and because I had been out of the country then for five years, then they um, a second chance to work with the same uh, project 
uh, rose a little bit later. So in the end of 2007 and 2008, I went, I went back to there for two months. I enjoyed that. Then I went back to Thailand. They thought they were going to have a job for me, a little bit more permanent, and that would have been nice because you know, they. But people already were complaining about all the money that was being thrown around. But anyway, I get an email while I'm in Thailand, and it says, "The money we thought we had, well, we don't have it. We're sorry." But the woman I was working with was very nice, and she fixed me up, hooked me up with the university. So that was actually my first time. I went to the university, and that was 2008 to 2010, and that's when I, I taught English. I also taught some political science, and uh, it was, that was very really quite interesting. I, I taught a course in like economic and political development, and, and the, the students were very good. They were very interesting in, uh, about it. They were they enjoyed it, and I enjoyed teaching them. So that takes me to 2010. Then I was at um, I went back with this, the old project that I was with for another short-term contract, and that would have taken me to like 2012. That was just, And then something came up, and I just kind of roamed the world, and it was in North, e North Iraq, Kurdistan. It's easy to say that. It doesn't quite exist yet, but hopefully it will. And I stayed there for two years. Yeah, the it was just for a university, not, nothing connected to America. And, but I really liked, I liked the Kurds. The administration wasn't so great, but I liked the students, and I was there for two years. I probably would have stayed, but I needed to—I needed an operation on my knee. It went off, it went fine, but I didn't sign a contract. And then when I asked if they wanted me to come back, and they said they would, but they had to cut the salaries because right at that time is when the fighting in Syria started out, and all these refugees were piling in and it was costing the country a little bit of money. So I go to these places and then they blow up. It's kind of funny. So anyway, after that I ended up in Libya, believe it or not, between the first fall of Gaddafi uh, and then there was a little bit of, uh, there was a, a calm period there and then the fighting blew up again. But in, during that calm period, I was there in, in Libya, and I, I don't know what I expected, but I really liked it. I liked the, the, the Libyans. They were very interesting, and it was a, an interesting place. wish I could have seen more of it, but I saw a little of it. But then that blew up, and then you, with, that job was over. I was teaching, on a, teaching English with some British guys on a, uh, an oil facility. And right there on the beach, I mean, I see it in the news all the time. And... Then I went back to Afghanistan. <laughs> and no, what would have been okay? Go ahead. No, what year is that, Kevin? When you went back? That okay. Two thousand fourteen, the end of two thousand fourteen. I went back to uh, Afghanistan to the American University, and I stayed there. I went up. One one nice thing about this this time, they sent me up to um, Mazar, which was actually was very nice. I liked it up there, and I actually offered me the chance to stay there, but for some ridiculous reason, I said no. I mean, I kept thinking about that during the captivity. But I was back in um, Kabul and teaching, and that's when it all, it all started. That's when we were kidnapped on the way home. So let's just summarize mm -hmm. for me the last time you were in Afghanistan from, from your first trip in 2007, 2008. Yeah. The last time you were in Afghanistan started when, before you were captured? 2014 in October.
So, first of all, your all your travels. This is a travel log, right? This is mm -hmm. a journey. You were in Libya. You were in Japan. You were in Kuwait. You were in Saudi Arabia. So there you are in Afghanistan. You're settling in. You obviously had some affinity for Afghanistan. You're teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There you are in Kabul University. What were the What was the environment like on the ground at the time? It was a little bit less um, freedom of movement than it was the first time I was there. Um, you just couldn't, you couldn't go, you could go out, but you couldn't go out too much. There was, there was just, just a sense that there have been some killings there, uh, of actually a teacher and a, and a, uh, a staff member was, uh, um, were killed. And so things were muted, but again, I didn't, I, I hadn't mixed feelings about it, but I, I don't know, I guess. You just figure, well, it won't happen to me. But things, it was nice. It was interesting to go back because when I went back the second time at the university, I, I saw students who had, um, who I had taught English to, and now they were students in the regular university. And it was nice to see them there and they were moving along. Some were getting uh, scholarships to America, and uh, that was nice, you know, to see that. And But it, things were a little bit more concerned, but a little more muted. There was a more awareness of security then. So what kind of protection did you have? Did you have, mm -hmm. did you have personal protection when you went home at night? Were you shuttled <sighs> back and forth to the university? Did you feel safe and secure? Generally speaking, yes, because they didn't move around that much. We had vans that took us from the university to our guest house and then from the guest house back to the university. It was, it, it just seemed fairly, fairly safe. There were a few, uh, we had a, a drill, a safety drill, but I, I think most, when you go there and it's just, you go through every day and nothing bad happens, you just tend to get a, what might, well, in my case, it was a, a false sense of security. But when this did happen, I was, I was about, nine days away from a six-week vacation that would have turned into a seven-week vacation because they had a lot of holidays. And my plan was, because it, it, my assigned classes would have been finished, my and at that point, there would only have been three months left on my, three weeks left on my contract. And my plan was to take important stuff home and then perhaps not return. But that was nine days away, but, you know, I ended up staying for three more years. So uh, how'd that happen? Like what happened that morning? Were you together okay. with three weeks? Were you in a vehicle? Could you kind of walk us through the event? Sure. Actually, it was in the evening. I had I had taught in the morning at a, a special location. And then later that, that day I was back at the university and we were just headed home on our in the van. And it was just fortunate, I guess. I mean, Tim and I and it just when it got out of the uh, the school, you know, there's the, the big you know iron gates and everything. We went out and then um, it turned the corner, and it just so happened that right there there was a uh, the uh, some Taliban, presumably from the uh, Haqqani network, pulled a van up in front of ours, and they're wearing um, Afghan military uniforms, which that we didn't get a hold of. And they just jumped out with the uh, machine guns and 
basically said, told them to open the, the, the doors and they dragged Tim and I out into their van and then they drove us out. So what were your first impressions? You, you surmised that they weren't Afghan military. Yeah. yeah, at first there was a possibility because it, we were told that the Afghan military, you know, for reasons of they've, you know, they want their sovereignty and everything, that they were stopping foreigners to make sure they had proper identification. I thought maybe it was that, but when they, but when they dragged us out and, you know, threw us into the, um, into their van and put us down and put, you know, covers over us, it was obvious that this was pretty serious. And I was, but it, it's kind of a blur, but I was just, you're, you're just traumatized and you're not thinking, at least I was, I mean, I just, you're just sort of blocking it out. I mean, you just want to stay alive and hope that you'll stay alive, but it was pretty obvious after just a couple seconds that this was very serious. So did you drive far, Kevin, or did you go to a safe house in Kabul? What happened? Okay. Um, they drove us out of the city and they took us to some hill. I, 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 I'm not sure, maybe this was when we crossed into Pakistan, but I can't be certain of all this. So overnight we were just sort of bound and gagged, bound and, you know, with our hands behind our back and they marched us up and down a hill and, uh, and then they we, we found a safe house. It would have been maybe on the border, either in Afghanistan or in, in Pakistan. And that was the next day. And they, they did feed us. They untied us. And they that's when it was, you know, at least you look for good news. But they said, we don't want to kill you. We just want to trade you. And so I hope they would get over pretty quick. But that's what they did. And then they drove us around for a few days. And we'd stay about a month in one place and then they'd move us to another place for a month. And maybe we'd stay for three months here and then they'd move us to another place. I think the longest we stayed in one place might've been like six months, but they didn't seem to want to keep us in one place for very long. So you were in Pakistan, you think for the most, for the most Not, Again, I thought we were, but then later we found out maybe we weren't. So okay. I think that, you know, yeah, I'm not sure on that, but I'm sure that I'm pretty sure that we must have crossed over at some time. Did you know at the time that the the Coleman's were also being held? No, I did not. They talked about it, the oh, our really? captors, but no, I didn't know. What did they tell you about it? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> See, that's when I, 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 you know, they. I'm trying to think what that. I thought that they were telling us that they had been released or that they were kidnapped after us which they weren't they were kidnapped before but that's all we heard of them and then they said they were eventually released i think i as i understand it they weren't released they were they were rescued but mm -hmm. um i heard that they had this woman had had one or two children there which is you know you know i'm just glad she survived that but that must have been rather difficult under the circumstances Right. I mean, yeah. Kate did deliver children in custody yeah. and she was rescued reportedly by the Pakistanis. So that's that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So let me just ask you a question. What were your conditions like while you, to the extent you're comfortable, what were your conditions like in, uh, in Afghanistan or in Pakistan while you were in captivity? 
it was there was nothing i mean i went for three years and three months without sitting in a chair i mean we were just on the ground on with mats and when it got cold with blankets but that was it i mean there was just it wasn't like you know hogan's hero you could walk around and in a pow camp you were just in a a house you know wood stone basic building with you know with um you know floor mats and and blankets and then they'd feed us twice a day how was that was it from the food were you or were you accustomed to afghan well it, was, it, well, it wasn't that much i mean maybe a plate of rice which actually would be pretty good sometimes we'd get some uh, goat meat uh sometimes some eggplant you know it was edible and it was it, sometimes it was okay sometimes it was decent and you know they wanted to keep us alive i mean that's what their job was to keep us alive until they could get what they wanted from us so did you fear for your life while you were in captivity kevin uh it would go back and forth there were times when i just said realistically that i this i won't survive because um and later it's different but it was they kept you know they're you know i guess kidnapping is an art i mean they they know what they're doing and they could say you know you're going to be released in a week you know and then because that went on for three years but i i didn't know what it would do you, you hope they would end so there were times when i just felt that it was going to end soon because they would they would talk to us and then there was some guy that this at the very beginning of it they said we're, we're negotiating and we think we're going to work something out but then other times you know it would just it would appear hopeless and the the worst thing as it got kept going my the health of both of us but, but me particularly uh the, our health deteriorated i think neither of us would have been a, would have survived another six months we, we both had operations within like three months of getting out uh, for a serious for um, hernia. So I, I don't think we would have survived a whole lot longer. And, and actually, one more thing. Um, sure. I, I'm sure that their job or, you know, their plan was to keep us alive until they could get what they want. But I, towards the end, it was, it was like I, I felt that um, things that were out of their control could have gotten us killed. They, um, you know, the Afghan army was after them and they would, we could hear towards the very end, they would hear helicopters at night sometimes and they'd be shelling whatever village we happen to be living in. And I thought, you know, that would be one way. They would just drag us and throw us into these tunnels. Um, another time in one place we were being held, there was a, a live scorpion walking around. That could have killed us. So there were things even without their control, even if their fear, you know, their plan was to keep us alive until they can get some prisoners exchanged. There were things that, that they could not control that might have killed us too. But, um, you know, you just hope, you just keep hoping that you'll stay alive. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So, Kevin, this might be tough to ask, and, and again, only yeah. answer it if you're comfortable. But, I mean, how did you cope, you know, with the idea of losing hope? How did you maintain your your sense of being centered? I mean, what were your techniques? Did you have any techniques? Did you build or what they are? I I don't know, and I I can't. I don't know what. Yeah, I you know, looking back, I don't know. I don't know what it. I just think it's just the animal will to survive. But I I don't. I I I didn't want to think about the effect it was having on my family. I didn't even know at the time that my mother was still alive or not. She died while I was being held. And, and my sister and everything. I, I didn't even want to think about that while I was there because it would just be too painful. So I just, again, my approach is just, I just tried to block it out. And, you know, it's like, I just, the only time you feel secure is when you could fall asleep. But um, I just tried to block it out of my mind and, you know, imagine, you know, hopefully that it would, they would work something out. Um, at that point, my, I, my health and everything had deteriorated to the point where I didn't, I wouldn't have, I don't know how far I could have gotten. I don't know, you know, you can think of we climb over the wall or something, but what are you going to find on the other side? You have no idea what's out there. So I just, you just, I, I don't think I, I, I got really despair that it wouldn't last that long, but it definitely, I felt it. And I just, well, I just stay there and then hopefully I, you know, get over it and, and just think hopefully something will happen. Did you have access to any books or a chess set, or did you and Timothy talk or play any yeah. mental games per se, or charades, anything while you? Were okay. Sometimes we did. Sometimes we are, you know. But also, there were times when they they wouldn't let us talk. They just, it, you know, we were just like dogs in a kennel, and you know, it wasn't extremely brutal, but the threat of being beaten was always hanging over us. Sometimes they wouldn't want us to talk. Uh, we just had to lie there, you know. I, looking back on it, I don't know how I survived. And right, I, I would just try to fight my. If something like that happened again, I would not. I would rather just get shot before it started. But they, that was it. Now they did give us at towards the end some books, you know, some Islamic books, which were it's kind of interesting. But other than that, no, nothing. Even like a chess set, they wouldn't let us have a pen. They wouldn't let us have a piece of paper, nothing. So did you have an opportunity to develop rapport with some of your captors? Uh, were any of them sympathetic to you? Yeah, you, you go back and forth. Some of them, you know, were just kind of brutal because, you know, they were under pressure, you know, from the, uh, you know, they, they had a job to do and their job was keeping us in line. Some were actually kind of nice, you know, they, they were, they, you know, they, they, they treated us humanely, but I mean, you know, we were, if you're humane, you know, why do you take people hostage? I remember one, towards the end, there was a guard there, one of the guards who, when he was the first time we'd seen him, and he was very friendly, he wanted, he always wanted to come in and talk to us about America and about this and uh, things like that. And, when he first met us, he asked us, what did you do? 
In other words, why did the Taliban take you? I said, we didn't, you know, we didn't do anything. They just took us at random. And they always said, you know, we were teaching Christianity or we worked for the CIA or something. But some were very friendly. There was a young fella there that actually, uh, that was nice to us. I mean, he would take care of us once. At one point, we, um, we were stuck in a tunnel and there was hardly any oxygen. I mean, we could breathe, but I could hyperventilate. Um, they had actually gotten Tim some cigarettes because he needed, he wanted to smoke. And uh, in this place we were at, there was so little oxygen, he couldn't even light a match. And oh. we were there for, and, but this young, young guy came in once, you know, and, you know, he explained that the pipe had been broken. So he fixed the pipe. Now, right then, you figure this guy, well, he saved my life. And so that was nice. But, you know, for the most part, it was just, that was their job. And uh, they had to let us know that, you know, don't try anything. They had to, you know, they, they couldn't loosen up at all because they had to keep us, keep so us there. I can't, yeah. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it occurred to me when you just mentioned the, the CIA, clearly you had no relationship with the CIA. You were a teacher. Yet, if somebody listened to all of the places you've been, like the Haqqani Network or Taliban, did they ever get a sense? Did they ever debrief you on your travel and accuse you of being an intelligence officer, for example? Um. Okay. I don't think so. But there, see, see, one thing you know about that I learned from just roaming around the world. I worked in ten different countries. Yeah. Um, and they, it's like the whole world's just different, obsessed with America. They love us, they hate us, but they're obsessed with us. It's like we're the, you know, we're the reality show for the whole world. And they think every American's a millionaire, every American works for the CIA, and it's just, we're just people for the job. The only thing that they, that they wanted to know, at the very beginning, they were, you know, they, they wanted to know how much money we made. And again, they thought we were teaching Christianity. I mean, that's the accusation. I don't think any of them really thought we were with the CIA, although they kept asking because, you know, maybe if I'd had some training, I could have gotten out. But they, for the most part, they just, they realized that we were just teachers and they were just holding us until they could get what they wanted. So you were really a pawn in some of the regional politics. Exactly. Exactly. So did one other question that we can move sure. on beyond captivity because there's some good news here or we wouldn't be talking to you. Did you and Timothy ever talk about or speculate about a rescue? And did you have a sense that the United States government was working on your release? Did you have any sense that there was this enterprise that you learned about later when you were released that was very much focused on, on your recovery? I wasn't aware of it. I obviously I am now and I, uh, but at the time, I, I wasn't aware. I'm grateful for the fact that they, you know, my, they, they were able to talk to my sister and, you know, explain what was happening and, and remind her that, um, you know, that it was being worked on. But I had no idea what it would amount to. Um, you know, just a jurisdictional thing. I, I didn't realize that for the most part, it was under the jurisdiction of the FBI because they treat it as a crime committed against an American citizen in a foreign country. So it was their, their, their concern. I did learn later that there were some rescue attempts. I don't know all the details, but um, 
apparently once there was, and the, the guards, the Afghan guards took us and threw us into a tunnel, they would always tell us that it was ISIS, or in their case, what they would say, Daesh, and that they had to protect us from them. And, well, you know, yeah, I believe them, but I realize now that one of the times that they were supposedly protecting us from ISIS, they were really, you know, trying to hide us from the, these rescue attempts. Apparently, these rescue attempts got close, but I don't know the details. Right. I, I read some references in some of the media accounts. So you never definitively knew exactly what was happening, of course, because your captors wouldn't share information with you. Um, so how did it all end? So you were released in December, like flash yeah. forward. How, how did things happen quickly or was it drip, drip, drip? Yeah, a little of both, but it, it, it accelerated. Round about, you know, again, they kept moving us around after that rescue attempt, I think would have been like March of 2019. And they moved us around some other places. And that's, I sort of sensed that it was on its way out. It was still six months or so away. But the last couple of places they had us, that's when, you know, they were talking about it. They talked about uh, Zalme Khalilzad. Khalilzad, right. And about him moving around and, the, you know, trying to negotiate something. And they, they talked about the negotiation. And they, I, I got the impression that they thought it was, was going to happen. Although I got that impression from them, you know, like two years before that. But one that back at the very beginning, even like after a year there, they were they were telling us that the Taliban wants to resolve this, which is nice. But you know, two years went by. But toward the last year, the conversation that the, the guards had with us very often was about who's negotiating with who and where he is and what's going to happen. Problem is, they would um, something would happen, you know, like an American vehicle, American military vehicle would run over an IED and get blown up. And that would be a problem. I remember they, they, they quoted Trump saying, you know, we could, you know, bomb them off the map. You know, he got frustrated. And I, I just wanted to explain to them, well, you know, he grew up in in Queens. And that's, that's the kind of trash talk you do there. But, you know, they don't understand that. And I mean, that's exactly what it must be frustrating because, you know, that they they know that by doing things like this, they can hold a country hostage. But there was a lot of talk about things. Sometimes it would look very optimistic and then it would fall. But the last couple of places we were in, it, they kept talking about it. Once they said it was I mean, towards the, we, they actually, we got out November 19 is when they actually let us go. And I would say through October, you sensed it was a done deal, but you know, darkest hour is just before gone. And October is when we started getting hit by the, uh, Afghan Air Force, and that could have—I mean, you—I could—we could hear, feel the, these missiles that they were firing down at this place that they were keeping us in, and they would just drag us out and throw us into a tunnel for a while, and again, and then move us somewhere else. Then the last place we were in, and it was typical because I—we were there, and I'm saying it, Tim, the third play time this happened. I said, you know, we've been here before. And we had it, but you know, they rip everything off the floor and the and the walls and everything, you know. But we've been there before. And 
the last couple nights they were putting us in this little tiny room because again they were afraid something would happen. But that's when they told us that it was gonna it was a done deal. They had released some prisoners and it was just a question of coordinating with um, Cutter. And and they told us, you know, it's gonna happen and then uh, they for what it's worth, they went out and bought us some new clothes so we'd look good. And they that was like one afternoon, I think it was a Tuesday, and uh, they they brought us out. And it, that's when it was kind of clear to me. I mean, I don't want to be certain, but it's obvious because they we put us into the, an antechamber, another room of this place, which we've never done that before. I mean, they never even we I, I would go for months without seeing natural light, and there was a bunch of other Taliban walking around in the uh, in the yard there, and it, it just felt like it was going to happen. And we got into a van with them, and they were—they drove us, I don't know, maybe an hour or so, to a big field. And then they got out of the field, and they put their banners up, you know, the Taliban, blah, blah, you know, to identify themselves. And, again, you're still wondering and <clears throat> what, what I'll never forget is this image in my mind of I could hear this, you know, helicopters, but I see the two um, Blackhawks flying formation and that's when I realized that this might actually end. And they did a perimeter, they landed, our guys came out, walked over to the Taliban, they shook hands with each other, and then we got off and got into the uh the Black Hawk and that's when it was over. Well and of course the guys the first question they checked checked on your health, right? Yeah. Well yeah they well they Yes, but you know they 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 wanted to make sure who I was. They got my name and everything. But they got us into the the Black Hawk and asked us if we need anything. Yes, if I could walk and I could, but not very well. But you know we were alive, so I think they had trickers just to get us. And they took us to a couple other one other place and in another aircraft, and then to a American base in Kandahar. And from there they flew us to uh, um, Bagram. And that's when the uh, the the health check came, you know, started. They drew blood and put us into, you know, into some rooms and everything like that. And I think that's when you must have had firsthand experience on really how this recovery process works to include evacuating you from from Afghanistan to Germany, where you met the ambassador. You want to share yeah. that? Story. Yeah, we were in Bagram for about a day and a half, and then they, um, you know, just to get some basic um, health coverage like that, and then they flew us to uh, to Germany, Lansdorf Regional Medical Center in, in southwest Germany. It's not, it's a, near a NATO base, and I think a, a, the U.S. base, I think that's where a lot of the uh, soldiers would get patched up, both from, you know, from Afghanistan or from Iraq. And I still remember we got, they landed us there and we get into a van and um, the, uh, the ambassador, Richard Grinnell was there. And um, he uh, gave me a, a folded up flag and, and he's, you know, he said, we were thinking about you the whole time. And I, I said, yeah, I, I know. And that, that's what kept me, that's what sustained me. And, but it was nice that someone was there. I just, I was kind of, uh, you know, I, I, was a, I couldn't remember much, but I just still remember the fact that he made the, the effort to be there and, and give me the, the flag. It felt good. 
you, you shared that story with me, Kevin. Thanks for sharing it with sure. our audience. Anyone that suffered through your experience would obviously be emotional and especially the sense that you were free after your captivity. Exactly. And so uh, I'm grateful for you sharing that with us. And uh, the first time, as a matter of fact, so we'll shift to kind of a, a fun topic. Let's just tell the audience the first time we met was where you shared with us that story was where? Um, at the Spy Museum. That's right. That was fun for us to meet for the first time. And I, we won't yeah. mention names, but there were several <laughs> folks from that had been working on your case. Uh, yeah, exactly. That'll remain anonymous. But also that day you met uh, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor. Uh, Robert made made a point of coming over to the Spy Museum just to say hello to you and and welcome you back because you guys haven't met hadn't met at at that time, right? No, no, I was still. Uh, um, we got back to the U.S. I did back in uh, December fourth, and uh, you know it's just sort of moving in and uh, or you know settling down. And then I, that would have been maybe a month later. I was in D.C. with you, and I, I met some of the people from the FBI, and that was like the first time I, I was sort of, uh, you know, just to get out. It was it was nice to get out. I really like. I enjoyed it there, and I was I did some sightseeing around D.C. and uh, I stayed on the wharf, which I really liked. It's actually pretty close to the. Uh, I could see the spy museum from my hotel, and so that that's what, that was the first time I got a chance I got to meet with. I met with uh, some of the FBI people that I had known, that I had met with, worked with in um, in Lonsdale. Yeah, and I met, got to see them again, and I got to see meet yourself and and some other people that had worked on the project on on me, on getting me out. And it was nice to know that I was <laughs> I was a, a person of interest at that time, and meeting the it was nice to have the uh, to have Robert O'Brien come by and you know take time out of the schedule. Well, that says a lot about Robert. We've talked yeah. about that. I texted him last week and, and told him you were going to do a podcast. And he got right back to me and said, tell, tell Kevin I said hello. So is there anything else you want to add? How are you coping now that you're home? You, we talked a little bit about the pandemic that ties you yeah, down. A yeah. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. I just, um, I'm getting locked down. I mean, it just... Uh, it put a, a damper on things, obviously, but it could be good. It's funny after after I met you, actually, I needed. Uh, uh, that's when I realized I needed a, an operation. So that happened in February, and then yeah, you know, I got. Oh, it, it worked fine, but it, I mean, it, it was successful. And by the time that you know the doctor gave me an okay and everything, I went back down to D.C. And that would have been about March first, and I, I met with uh, some people in, in the FBI. And we I talked to them for a while. And I did some. Some more sightseeing, and I was at that point. It was like I was ready for the world. I was just start living again, and then two weeks later, it's just it's going to lockdown. It's loosened up, and that's fine. But um, you know, it just coming when it did. It would just made things tougher. But you know, I got my life back, and uh, I went out and got some exercise equipment. So at least I had something to do. Well, we want to get you back to the spy museum when when things open <laughs> up. We're back reopened and mm -hmm. you're welcome anytime um, although okay. we do this today uh, virtually but also the work that was done by the US government on the back mm -hmm. ensuring that you were recovered 
and that you had the medical care, the appropriate debriefings, and you're still connected, of course, to the community. Um, they can help help you with the unique problems that hostages have to deal with once they're recovered. Um, yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to add about the hostage takers, the handling, anything else you want to share? No, I, I can't think of, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I've talked to the, you know, appropriate government officials about it, and I, I wish I could remember more to help them more, but, you know, I, I don't, it was, it was just one of those things that, you know, I guess it, it, it's, I survived it all, and that's, to me, is the big thing, and I'm just, I'm glad that I did, and get back up. The medical staff at Bagram and Lonsdale were incredible. You know, they, they put me back together. And uh, I realize now all the work that the people in the government had done for me, yourself and, and some others, and that, you know, I, I, that's very humbling for me. Kevin, thank you for your courage to share the story. Thank you for what you you endured and uh, and really coming on to, to tell our listeners and educate them on your experience is really important to us and we're really grateful. Thanks for sharing your story and sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Chris. I, I really appreciate it. It's nice to speak and I hope people you know enjoy hearing it. And visit the Spy Museum. It's a great place. Thanks, Kevin. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.